next guest is a college football legend and a former Pro Bowl NFL receiver. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brandon Lloyd. Brandon, is everything going for you? Things are going well. Thanks for having me on, Zach. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. How's your summer been going? I know we're kind of moving towards the fall. Football's kind of getting rolling. How's everything been for you? Summer's been good. You know, I'm uh, enrolled in an MBA program, so I'm, you know, doing a lot of summer school. And um, and so just just doing that. So I haven't been watching much TV. <laughs> you're not you're not missing out on anything. The Olympics are on at two o'clock in the morning. Baseball's going. Baseball's always on. Soccer, soccer was all right, and then summer league just ended. So you really, you haven't missed anything. So yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like you know, being a fourth round draft pick, the preseason was always important to me because I had to use that time to to um, to make the team. So I really appreciate the media that's going around the the preseason and yeah. the players that are making the plays. So it's yeah. fun to see what players are are making an impact in the preseason. Do you think the fans are just kind of starved, starved for content now? And they're kind of like, is this, is this more, is this preseason more popular than you can imagine in recent years? It's more popular than it has been in recent years, but it's I, to what I think it is, is because of the media coverage, you know, the, the utilizing social media, utilizing uh, those platforms, the players utilizing social media. So I think it's just in our face a lot more as a player. It was always a big deal. There's always a lot of pressure around the preseason, who's going to get in, how much time am I going to get? Or as a veteran, how much time am I not going to get because I don't want to get injured out there? But I think it's a, particularly uh, a special year this year because of the draft, the quarterbacks yeah. and uh, the quarterback uh, battles that are happening around the league. So it, it's, it's heighten, heightening the uh, awareness to those organizations and to the, the individual position battles, and I think it's healthy. When you first came into the league, it's obviously pre-social media. Were there a lot of like film crews and camera crews and a lot of people out there with cameras? Was it kind of much more mellow? It, the 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 media coverage was mellow. Yeah. yeah. Um, early because I feel like you know I played in two different eras. I played yeah. in you know the the early two thousands, and then uh, came back with the 49ers in 2014, 2015 season, yeah. and that was when social media was uh, really ramping up, and so you know we finish practice and you know they'd be playing highlights from practice and it'd be like you know beautiful you know 10k <laughs> film of a catch on the sideline it was kind of like, like all right that looks fly and then you know and it goes out and so it's neat to to show the fans what's going on on the practice field and what's going on behind the scenes and how good the team is looking uh, in the practice setting but you know it's not indicative to how the team is going to perform on sunday so um uh, but it's neat to get that out, you know, in practice, we're typically dressed a lot flyer than we would be dressed in the, in the game. So that's, that's, so it's nice to put out the style, yeah. show people how fly we are in the practice. Field. Yeah. <laughs> so those are, those are some of the fun parts about that. But, so, so, but the intensity was, was a lot higher uh, really? uh, from the coaching, you know, okay. doing two a days, doing pad pads or even three days on some, some of those programs. So the practice was a lot more intense uh, b because of the pads and the, and the style of coaching, but um, but it was less media coverage of what was going on actually in the in the practice. So in this, it, it, obviously, you guys are trying to win the games in preseason, but like it's not as much as important. It's more about showing what you have, what you can do, rather than the numbers and the wins and losses. Yeah, because you know you pretty much know who's going to be on the roster, right? There's 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 it's it's pretty sewed up, probably eighty five or 90% of the spots are sewn up. Now, uh, what we relay to the, to the players who are on the, on the bubble is, 
every team is watching this. Yeah. So if you're out there dogging it, half-assing it, every team's going to see that, and it's going to lower your odds of uh, getting an opportunity to play or getting an opportunity to be considered to play when players get injured throughout the season. So when you're going out there, you're not just playing for this organization, you're playing for all the other 31 other teams. I'm not sure when they changed it, but when they used to do the weekly cuts, now that now that's kind of like end of the preseason, they kind of narrowed down to 53. Does, did that add more pressure knowing that every week is super, like now it's kind of like, all right, I can, I can prove what I, I can show what I can do over a three or four week span. Then it's really like I could be gone tomorrow. Right. Yeah. That was definitely a, a lot of pressure. Um, that, that, that week to week, because it's like every, every little instance in practice you know a drop pass or a missed assignment or you know a missed tackle or late to a meeting you know everything was really uh it felt like it was really adding up for players and for myself so yeah it put a lot of pressure uh day to day on it Uh, you know you know later in my career seeing the seeing the players it was a little bit more relaxed yeah um uh going through the the preseason knowing that they could put together a body of work but at the same time, in that week to week, a player get cut and get scooped right up that same afternoon or that yeah. night and still be able to get another opportunity to perform. Yeah, yeah. it's like a double edged sword because then it's really like, all right, you don't have as long a leash, but there's more availability elsewhere. Now it's really like, all right, you want to kind of stay to the end. But if you stay to the end and then you get cut, everybody's kind of full. So, yeah, it's wild. Um, are there any guys either that have been you've been seeing them uh, perform really well in the preseason or guys coming into the season that you're excited to see what they do this year? Receivers specifically, um, receivers specifically. No, I haven't been watching the preseason. I've just been I've been catching the highlights. Obviously, I got my eye on uh, what the Cleveland Browns are going to do, uh, incorporating Odell Beckham Jr. back into the offense because uh, it seems like they're pretty successful without him. Um, uh, I'm curious to see how uh, the Green Bay Packers are going to uh, bounce back um, with Adams. I'm also um, uh, curious to to see. Obviously, Tampa Bay, I'm, I'm going to always follow uh, Tom down there and, and, and who's catching the passes for him. Um, obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, I, I like the way Mahomes spreads the ball around and gets it around, especially to the tight ends. So it's like how they're going to utilize those positions. And obviously, I got my eye on the, the young quarterbacks. You know, I'm, you know, Jacksonville, who's going to be the pass catchers down there, who's going to make the plays. And, um, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I can think of off the top of my head. Do you follow a lot of the Big Ten guys, or is it kind of presently Matt? You kind of just follow everybody. I just, I just watch, <laughs> watch the, you know the highlights. I think you guys, you guys, you guys are like the first big time college game this year, right? Yeah, uh, Illinois, Nebraska. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Are you going? I think I saw they tweeted out a picture of you. I think it's like some anniversary. Yeah, we know we got to come back and celebrate the Big Ten championship. You know that. You know that. Twenty That's awesome. years. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Oh yeah. <laughs> what do you think of the guys, the basketball guys this year in the tournament? Oh, you know, I, I, I thought they settled for a Big Ten championship when they actually could have went for a national championship. I thought it was, I thought it was all in the makings. Um, it seemed to be a game plan issue. Uh, I, you know, I would have been riding a, a NCAA Player of the Year, the Naismith Award winner, versus uh, the center uh, in that uh, first game. Oh, Domboso? Dumbo- and the center has the unfortunate last name spelling. Is is Coburn 
That's what he yeah. likes. And, it, and it's not spelled Coburn. But right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like, I, I would have went with the NCAA player of the year and centered my offense around that um, instead of the center. And yeah. I think that was the most frustrating part of, of watching that NCAA tournament. Yeah. And then so I, want, I kind of want to get into your career. How did you how did you end up at Illinois? Um, you know, I was only picking schools that had broadcast journalism programs that were that were top in the nation. So Illinois in 1999 was th top three in the nation. And um, uh, the second part about that was when I got on campus to my recruiting visit. You know, it was just you know all inclusive. You know, we were we we were kicking it with the linemen. That you know the the tight ends. We went to um, the all black fraternity parties. We went to the cool. uh, the white fraternity parties, and you know we it was just um uh, a, a very eclectic diverse campus and play players and the players uh mixed really well and i just i, I felt really comfortable at the university of illinois that's awesome did you feel like when did you kind of feel when was the nfl kind of put on your radar the nfl was put on my radar <laughs> um uh, after the 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 big 10 championship season and um you know having a thousand yard season and then it was like the scouts were there you know i got wind that the scouts were looking at me and i was kind of like oh this is actually something that i could do <laughs> you know because at first i was just going to school you know i was yeah. having a good time i was running track i was you know going to class as much as i could and <laughs> and uh, enjoying myself and just having a good college experience but then all of a sudden that happened that um uh, I, I got word that that was happening for me, and then I kind of hit a switch. You know, thankfully I bumped into Isaac Bruce and Tori Holt, um, and, and a summer internship with Fox. Sports oh, really? No, I never knew that. In Fox Sportsnet St. Louis, because um, uh, I was part of my agreement to go to the University of Illinois was that in my third year I would get an internship at a major um, uh, radio network. I had my eye on going to Chicago and working for ESPN. And then when the time came up, Ron Turner said, ah, oh, it's a little too far. I'm going to send you to St. Louis to Fox Sportsnet and do TV. And so I went down there. I had an a, a extended study through the University of Illinois. I had a professor I was reporting to. Fox Sportsnet brought me in to cut up highlights and, um, and do uh, interviews. And I bumped into Tori Holt and Isaac Bruce in a practice. And they whistled me over like, hey, dude, come to lunch. I sat in lunch and they're like, dude, you can go pro. And I was kind of like, all right. And they're like, here's what you need to do. You know, first thing you need to do is get yourself some gloves on, you know, because I was wearing, <laughs> I was just putting tape around my fingers. Oh, really? like, hey, man, it makes the ball easier to catch if you wear gloves. <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, they gave me tips like that uh, and just mindset, footwork drills, catching drills, took them back to campus and, and I was off and running. So definitely helped running into those guys. That was right before the Super Bowl season, so they must have been like, like on the on the top of the world, and you're like, you're talking to me. Oh, those those are legit, and and I was and I was small like them, and I was pat I was patterning my game after them already, and then and then just for them to even recognize me, to even say what's up, you know, me standing on the sideline uh, at a mini camp practice to even call me over there, I was just I, it was it was really flattering and humbling, and then for them to just be so real and down to earth and just let me know like here's what you need to do. Oh, I listen. That's wild. <laughs> I never knew. That's that's wild. And then so fast forward towards the draft. What was your draft process like? What do they have you? Were they were they where were they projecting you? Um, uh, first day, I was projected first day, um, and then I ended up going in the fourth round. And so uh, naturally, I was upset 
like everybody else, you know, the only person happy in the NFL draft is the first overall pick. Everybody else thinks they should have been drafted higher. <laughs> so, so uh, naturally, I was really ticked off, but uh, uh, getting an opportunity to go to the, the 49ers, Terry Donahue, God rest his soul, um, uh, drafted me, uh, brought me in. I can tell you a funny story about uh, Terry and his memory. Um, I was doing special teams. Uh, obviously, I was a fourth-round draft pick, so they had me um, running down at L4 and on the kickoff, so that's the second man from the sideline. And uh, at that point in the NFL, that was when teams could run the wedge uh, for the kickoff return. And uh, for your listeners who don't know what the wedge is, for the, uh, the, the return man, teams would put offensive, the backup offensive guard, <laughs> they put in the backup defensive tackle, backup, you know, defensive end, and then form a three-man wedge and then run that into the kickoff return team. And so the L4 was the person who was supposed to be the wedge buster. And they had me as a rookie, 170 pounds <laughs> as the wedge buster. Terry walks out to practice one day. This was before one. This is before the first preseason game. He counts. He's like one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. He's like, "Hey, Lloyd, uh, uh, what, what position they got you at out here?" It's like they got me at L four, wedge buster. I said, I shook my head. Yeah. He goes. He just shook his head at me. He's like, "Okay, okay." Next day, I was off of the wedge buster. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and so it was like, and so that's why I feel as it was, it was a lot harder for me to make NFL teams strictly as an outside receiver and not as a special teams person and a wide receiver. So that's why I uh, found my uh, story in the NFL pretty unique. It's interesting. And so when you, when you, um, were you, when did you kind of know you were kind of having a draft day slide? Were you sitting there watching the whole thing or you were literally like, all right. So they're like, Hey, turn it on when we get towards here. No, man, I was watching the whole thing. And then, and it, and, you know, first round, second round, third round. And um, my sports agent had one of the represent representatives in the house with me in Kansas City, Missouri, or in Blue Springs, Missouri. And um, and it was just kind of like crickets, nothing, nothing, nothing. Was there, did you, was there anything that like the teams were saying? Like, like or it was just out of the blue. It's, it's wild. You know, and, you know, not that I can remember. You know, obviously I was, you know, really small my uh, performance at the NFL combine, I think I ran a 4.7 um, uh, and you know, it wasn't that hot. And, and, you know, obviously my pro days were, were much better, but yeah. who knows, who knows what that was. But That's the, that second day, you know, I just turned it off, I ended up going to a, a track meet at the, the Blue Springs high school in my hometown. And I actually got a call myself. I'm like, Hey, you know, 49ers are wanting to pick you up. So I kind of, got home and and got in position for that to to talk to the organization that's wild what was it like when you first got there intimidating you know because it was a it was a there was an old to doesn't show up with a like a like a welcome wagon you're like hey oh yeah hey. box of chocolates yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right no 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 the um you know because the old guard was still there uh of, of the NFL, you know, these, you know, late night, late nineties players who were also uh, mentored and groomed by these eighties players. It, it, so it was a old guard and it, you know, the, the hazing, the physical intimidation, the psychological, 
you know, intimidation. It was just all in full effect. And uh, it, it was it was an intimidating environment. Um, a lot of those players were, you know, they were flashy, you know, T.O., Garrison Hurst. But uh, they had they were just they were they had a work ethic about them that was admirable. You know, those players really got after it in practice. Uh, Fred Beasley. But then the offensive line was just and just really uh, uh, good role models. Uh, John uh, um, uh, Newberry, Ron Stone, Derek Deese. And, you know, the perennial pro bowlers made a bunch of money, worked really hard, and they were, they, were, they were really good role models. So as intimidating as they were, it was, it was just – it came off as tough love. That's awesome. Was there any guys that were kind of like, kind of like, a, like a mentor, kind of guys that kind of like showing you kind of like, hey, this is what you need to do, do this, do that, do this? No, not, not really. Not, not in that organization. Really, in that time period, they, they, you know, they had to get rid of those. You know, uh, they got wow. rid of To and Ty Streets, <laughs> and then what the organization started doing was they started bringing in uh, these mentors. They brought in uh, Curtis Conway my second year when I was starting for the 49ers my second year. So it was almost like I started this whole apprenticeship program through the <laughs> through the organization. They brought in Curtis Conway that first year. He's the one who started telling me about practice habits. And, you know, he was married to Layla Ali. So you talk about off I the forgot field, about that. Yeah. being fly, you know, having money, you know, being, you know, all American, USC, super fly, going to the Bears, really balling in the league as a young person. So he could really talk to me and relate to me about being young, coming into money, um, you know, wanting the jewelry and, and have it. But you need to make sure you do your thing on the football field, uh, on the practice field. My third year in the NFL, they brought Johnny Morton in. So Johnny Morton was actually the one who uh, taught me about, you know, hey, this play's worth this kind of money. That play's worth that kind of money. When you make these plays, you need to start thinking about your future and thinking about what this means. And that's towards your contract. And so he was really putting into my mind, again, another baller. Another guy went to Detroit and went off and like went to, uh, you know, the Chiefs and was like, had an awesome career and was just a super fly dude. And so uh, it was neat to like emulate his style you know, on and off the field and then add my own uh, player into that. So, you know, it was, it was really neat what the organization did with that. That's awesome. Um, what, what was it like when you finally made that, you finally made the starting rotation as a receiver? It was, you know, it, you know, I, it, I felt like it was how it should be. You know, obviously I needed to, to do a lot to, to develop. Um, and, and most of that was just size. I was just a small guy. I was really thin and had trouble putting on, putting on weight. And so I was like, just getting in the habit of, you know, not eating fast food and uh, developing a diet, developing uh, a, a training regimen that, that fit my, uh, that fit my body. And I wasn't really able to get into that until, you know, 2006, until I uh, bumped into a trainer outside of the organization, um, just through, just through the players in the locker room, through Sean Springs. And most of that was just looking in the locker room. I got on a new team and I looked at the guy's bodies and I was like, no, nah. I was like, Clinton Portis, nah, <laughs> uh, you know, nah, nah, and I was like, Sean Springs, ooh, like, this guy's got a great body, I was like, all right, who's your trainer, <laughs> you know, and so that's how I got that, and then all of a sudden, I was able to uh, start training and eating for my body type, for my blood type, and then I really started getting into um, uh, the health aspect, in San Francisco, I was seeing an applied kinesiologist, and that was just the start of 
um, uh, body function and body motion and chiropractic work and uh, supplementation um, and, and eating healthy, like cutting out dairy and, you know, you know drinking more water and cooking more uh, organic foods. And so I, I, I got into that my uh, second year in the NFL, and that was just like the snowball effect. And th- those are definitely important components to uh, having longevity in the NFL. What was it like when you, when you got traded to D.C.? Um, you know, it was good to have the payday. You know, that, that was, um, you know, that was, unfortunately, that was the, that was the point. The 49ers weren't going to compensate me and, and they didn't quite have the, uh, the, the, the structure in place, uh, from the, the head coach, uh, that came in, Mike Nolan, you know, wasn't qualified and, uh, wasn't getting along with the existing players and wanted to overhaul the organization. And so he let a lot of players go that still had a lot of value, uh, within the fan base and within the organization and in the market. So going to the, uh, the Redskins, you know, uh, my sports agent, he, he was telling me, you know, it's probably not a good fit for you, but you need to take the money because it's time. And, you know, you don't know if it's going to happen again. The market was ready. You know, I, you know, the organization traded two draft picks and gave me a blockbuster contract. So, you know, those are all components that, um, that, that factored in. But in my mind, I'm like, dude, I've never had a problem with a, with a football coach ever, you know, Coaches love me. I'm like a teacher's pet when it comes to. So that's the truth. Uh, so you and you and Gibbs weren't you really see eye to eye? Yeah, and then it was like I got I got in the got in the organization, and uh, and it, it was just it wasn't it wasn't as promised. You know, uh, uh, Al Saunders built himself as the person who was calling the place for the greatest show on turf. He was just a position coach, and um, you know the they said they were going to spread the ball around. Um, uh, you know they they switched out a quarterback. They put a quarterback in, and then it was, you know, throw the ball to Chris Cooley, you know. It's and my so guy. It's, like, it's my guy, Chris. Oh yeah, Chris Cooley's my guy too. <laughs> um, but you know, it just wasn't. It wasn't uh, a winning formula uh, for in DC. The they don't leave everything figured out. That's that's crazy to think about. Yes, because money solves everything. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Allen, was Bruce Allen there? Bruce Allen leading the way? Literally like this guy's never watched a game of football in his life. Um, <laughs> yeah, the previous yeah. guy never watched yeah. a game of football in yeah. his life either. Yeah. <laughs> just, looking, just looking at the roster, you guys had a loaded receiver call. <laughs> loaded. You, Santana, Randall L, and then you had Cooley out like that. That's what was it like in those practices? You guys were probably just balling out. No, I mean the ball just wasn't getting spread out. You know, it was just it wasn't. It was QB, it was QB when you got there. Uh, Jason Campbell and another uh, guest. God damn it, Jason. Mm-hmm. Come on, <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, Mark Brunel, who was oh, wow. who was the who was the more qualified. But he was uh, like sixty when he got there. What, 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 what? And he could sling the ball, and yeah. and and he was and he was comfortable uh, uh, throwing the ball and taking risk. But then they put in a younger quarterback who had very little experience, so things were just late and. Uh, things were ch- checked down to the running backs and then just crammed into the the lowest level receivers. And so that just makes it difficult for an outside receiver to to really get after it. Yeah. You know, and I think the other thing was about that, uh, to talk about the practices, the practices were really hard because um, God rest his soul, Sean Taylor was out there. Sean Springs was at corner. Fred Smoot was at corner. And these dudes were really intelligent. I, I, I was talking to, uh, you know, because I would get locked down in practice. And um, and I and I and one day Sean Springs finally said, "Dude, I know all your splits. You line up four yards outside the the 
the numbers, I know you're running a slant. You line up on the numbers, I know you're running inside seven. You line up on the inside of the numbers, I know you're going to run an out route. Either three, and I'm looking at the quarterback, so it's either I'm looking at the left tackle, so it's either going to be three step, you know, or four, five step. All I have to do is read it. So Sean was just incredibly smart, and they just didn't give us any slack in practice. They didn't, they didn't give it up. <laughs> what, what, what was what was it like to kind of beat around Sean Taylor? Because a lot of people would obviously, unfortunately, pass so or so so mm. young in life, and just a special talent. He's like a special human being. Yeah, he was um, he was a, a incredible soul. He was my seatmate uh, on the airplane, so he sat next to me, and uh, he was actually the first one because you know he went to the University of Miami, yeah. where they learn how to be professional athletes in college. I went to Illinois. I thought I was going to be a broadcast journalist. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like the NFL happened to me, yeah, kind of out of the blue. And so he was actually spent a lot of time with me talking about you know uh, doing things my way like keeping my confidence up. He was seeing what was going on with me in the organization. And he spent a lot of time telling me, you know, you know, fuck that. <laughs> that's not, that's not who you are. You're better than that. Step up, do it your way. And really, like really instilled an attitude in me where I could get the confidence to stand up for myself in that organization and then move on with my career. And, you know, it was really, um, uh, 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 still speaks to my soul. Um, uh, Sean Taylor spirit. That's wild. Could you could you tell early on that he was just built different? Like this is this is this is something like we like this is a, this is a DB we have never seen before. Yeah, and 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 the and, and and the attitude, you know, the the mentality. It was just it's just the freak the the freak of nature, um, and in its truest form. Where you know, you know he did he didn't train a whole lot in the weight room, but when really? he did, no, but when he did, it was just like he could lift so much weight. <laughs> Like, you know, it was, you know, he wasn't like, like super muscular and super defined, but he was incredibly explosive. And um, it, it was the only player where in the NFL, where the organization played his high school highlights. With, while he was, you know, he'd be in the room and they'd be like, man, we got to watch this again. <laughs> you know, dude throwing passes. He's the quarterback. He's the running back. He's the receiver. He's, you know, linebacker, defensive end. He's like doing everything. He's just out here like, like this is crazy. While he was there, they were playing his highlights? Man, the, the junk is legendary. It is legendary. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. He, and it was just, he, he was special. He was really humble. And it was just so much to take from him in his in his spirit and his soul. And you know, as a as a football player, you know, it's he it was it was Sean Taylor, it was uh, Stephen Jackson, and it's Tom Brady, where it's rare when you get around a player who knows they're good, they know it, and they don't have to act, they don't have to pretend. You know, a lot of players are putting on a show like, look how good I am, look how good I'm. Like those players are just like, it speaks for itself. <laughs> It speaks for itself. I go up, I show up, and and I'm good. And and that's what that's what are some really um, admirable character traits of professional athletes. Were you guys in Ashburn when you were there? Yeah. Wow. I've never been, but I've heard it's quite a place. Um, no, that's that's wild. Um, and then um, so fast forward. So after, so I want to fast forward to your time with uh, Denver. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you had it was 2010, 2010, or 2011. 2010. 
Yeah. 1,400, nearly 1,500 yards. What, what was, how was that? What was going on that season? Did you just feel better? You were just kind of in a good, I know the team on team record didn't do as well, but you personally, it was, it was unreal. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I like how you phrase that. I felt better. Yes. I felt better. I was remarkably healthy for some reason. It was like, I didn't have a strained muscle. I didn't have a bone, a bruised bone. I didn't have a back strain, an arm, nothing, a neck, nothing, a back, nothing. I was insanely healthy that season. And um, <clears throat> Josh McDaniels, who brought me to Denver, him and Kyle Orton, um, he actually ran my pro day at the University of Illinois. He was like, oh, you know, we all, I always wanted to draft you with the Patriots and you just wouldn't fit, you know, in, the, in Bill Belichick's system. And, um, and he said, but I always wanted you. And he said to me, if you can play anywhere remotely close to the way you were performing at that, con at that uh, pro day, you'll be all pro. That's what he said to me. I was like, dude, in my mind, I was like, that was seven, eight years ago? Like, I, and, 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 and I was still kind of going through the, where I was a little, I was doubting myself some, because I, I played on, I was on that team in the uh, 2009 season, and I was backing up. You know, Brandon Marshall, Jabbar Gaffney, Eddie Royal, Brandon Stokely. And those players stayed healthy, and I didn't get any time on the field until the end of the season when a few of those players start faking injuries because they didn't want to ruin them. They didn't want to ruin their, their <laughs> hopes for next season. And so I got on the field, and, I, you know, and it was like that was my opportunity to show. And so I had a couple games really good, and then they, um, they moved those players on. I started 2010, and uh, Kyle Orton and I had a really good relationship in, in uh, Chicago before I had a knee injury. Uh, we got along off the field, we got along in the locker room, and we got along in the film room. And so when I got to Denver, I was able to play the cerebral offense that I've always wanted to play. We're, we're, we're reading the defenses, you know, have two and three options. And then another set of hand signals that we can go to. And it just, and it worked. And then the offensive coordinator who actually believed in my talent, he, he wanted to throw me the ball. It was like high school all over again. You know, it was like college all over again, where it's just like, throw the ball to Brandon, throw it in his direction, let him, let him figure it out. So um, I, I think it was that, having that confidence of the quarterback and the offensive coordinator. And then, you know, you know that, that point where effort and opportunity meet. I always consider myself an effort guy. Uh, and I was just kind of waiting for the right opportunity for that coordinator and quarterback situation. And that opportunity presented itself, and I was ready to seize that opportunity. I'm looking at it now. You get 77 catches for 1,400 yards. It's about almost 19 yards a catch, 11 TDs. And it says here you only started 11 games. Right. That's unbelievable. That's wild. Mm -hmm. That's, were you getting like publicity like you never had before where people are like where is it, it was kind of similar to other seasons no it's low-key and that's the unfortunate thing about balling out on loser teams it's just like you can't really soak it up because then the other players would look at me like dude who you think you are you know and it's like and i'm looking at you like dude who do you think you are dude step up so i can like get some shine <laughs> it's like um so it's like that's that's always the tough part um and you know just you know kind of rolling with it um, the, I was really downplaying it. The Denver media was onto it early because I had got more yards in the first six, seven games than I had, you know, <laughs> in previous three stops, right? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Combined. And, you know, they're like, 
Hey, you know, you're getting really close to a thousand yard season. Hey, you know, you, you've compiled more yards. And I was kind of like, ah, it's nothing to me. It's nothing to me. I'm not paying attention to that. <laughs> so I just downplayed a lot of it to remain focused also, because I also didn't want to put anything in the press to make the, the, um, uh, the quarterback or the offensive coordinator to think I wasn't uh, focused on winning these games because that's all I was trying to do was not be the weak link. I was just trying to do my part. And, uh, and my part, uh, it was necessary for us to throw the ball 40 or 50 times a game to stay in these games. And I needed to, to make those catches and make the most of those plays. And that, and that, was, and that was just my part. Does it feel weird celebrating when you're getting like when you're way down? You're like, all right, this is amazing. I just did, but like these people get pissed. It's horrible. I mean, it's bad. You know, it's it, you know, but I was used to it in San Francisco, <laughs> so it's like you know, have a little celebration, do a little something here and there. But you know, those the the older cats in San Francisco would be like, dude, like what, what what the hell are you celebrating for? <laughs> so I, I started tempering that tempering that down throughout my career. Speaking of that, what do you think of this NFL's new taunting rules? I didn't see them. What are they? So basically now you can celebrate, but if, if you celebrate in the poor performance of a defensive player or an opposing opposing player, it's 15 yard penalty. Okay. So, like, so, so what's that like, like, like spinning the ball in their face? Spinning or, the ball in their face, maybe like yeah. uh, Tyreek Hill did the, did the piece, piece out yeah, last year. Yeah, so yeah. Flip in and piece in. Yeah. Do you think that's excessive or do you think they're just like – guys you guys you're like hitting each other at 100 miles an hour i don't think i don't think like kind of like getting on the guy and opposing team's too bad yeah look it is what it is so the players got to abide by it i i think the excessive taunting um towards the defensive players only makes you a target so it's, it's almost like these rules are to help the offensive players because a guy doing too much of that stuff guys start coming for the head coming for their legs and start playing in unsportsmanlike ways, then the offensive players will start getting um, bent out of shape. So it's best just to respect the opponent, period. Nope. I want to ask you, who was the toughest uh, DB you had to match up with your entire career? Um, uh, McKenzie and Al Harris, that duo. I th I, those, those two, because uh, they were so long, they were – um, the defensive scheme that cover two that usually had safety help there just really could disrupt at the line, and th th you know they were really thugged out. Like those dudes were like bout it, bout it out there, and 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 that was it, it was it was intimidating. They had to scheme. They had ballers all all over the defense, and uh, and and those were probably the the, the toughest uh, matchups in, in that, especially in that era. And it was, it, yeah. Um, and then fast forward, uh, go to New England. What, what was that like playing with Brady and being in that offense? Dream come true. Dream come true. You know, obviously we were, we were running that offense in, in Denver, which was appealing to Tom um, because, you know, we didn't even have a run game and we were able to throw the ball deep and, and average, you know, that many yards per catch, which was uh, which Tom was was impressed by and wanted, wanted that component to the offense um uh the the those particular plays that i were running were unique to me and that's and that was just because of the relationship with josh and how much he believed in me you know i was running double and triple moves in that offense in denver and in um st louis and st louis it would be like nine man protection <laughs> i'd be the only receiver out in a route you know, and, and it was like that much confidence. And so, you know, those are some of the things Tom was seeing. 
But I think what uh, made the experience um, unique in Tom, unique in Tom, unique in New England was one just the New England area. You know, it was actually a bucket list, uh, trip, really? you know, location for me and destination just to to, to be in that part of America. Um, uh, two was c- continuing to play with Josh McDaniels and three to, p- to play with Tom. You know, I've been lobbying my entire career to play with Tom, do an NFL network interview. Who's the best player in the NFL? Tom Brady. <laughs> hey, like, like, who's the best, who, who's the best wide receiver in the, in the, in the NFL? Uh, who, who's Tom Brady throwing to? <laughs> right. So I, I've been, I've been wanting to position myself to get on the team with him and to finally do that. Uh, it was special. Uh, because one, like I said, it was, you know, someone who knows that they're good and they don't have to act like it. He just knows it. Uh, uh, another component to that is the hard work, the work ethic. Dude wears glasses and sits in the front of the meeting room and take notes like he's a rookie. <laughs> and and um, the, the film, the, the, the way he knows that um, the opponent, he said to me before one game, he says, you know, you know, in this situation, uh, in this uh, third down situation here in the red zone, that coach ran this coverage on me. <laughs> like that coach ran a coverage on him that he remembers. And so he's taken that into a game from seven years ago. And it's just amazing. Um, uh, the third component of, of Tom is that he's an incredible friend. Um, uh, you know, like he's like caring you know, in the locker room, he's like, like, what's up, B. Lloyd? How was your night last night? You know, you want to come over and watch Monday Night Football with me and G tonight? <laughs> you know, it's like, come over, watch football with him and Giselle, with getting treatment from the trainer. It was just like That's wild. a really incredible experience. They asked you to bring, they say, like, hey, you bring some chips. We're, we're hosting. You bring some chips. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the last part about Tom is just then he hits the switch and you get on the practice field. I mean, it's a, a whole nother animalistic level of competition and practice that he's trying to uh, replicate a game and so it's just like hey uh, after practice you know he's like me and you uh, uh, 10 uh, big posts deep post balls I'm like all right full speed cool <laughs> right after a full practice that was comprised mostly of no huddle and then we go and then work on uh, 10 passes uh, and it was just like that level of, of detail. It was really spectacular and fun to be around. Do you think he still has these, um, like these regiments, these things he's doing in his career now, or do you think he's kind of toned it down a little bit and just kind of just not doing the, not doing what's expect, not doing any more than is expected of him? I would, I would, I would expect that the regimen is still the same. I would, I would expect, you know, I wouldn't expect anything less. The only time that he'll tone it down and do what's expected of him, less expected of him, or however you worth that, is when he retires. Then he'll do less. <laughs> as long as he's, as long as he's playing, I think it's good. It's 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 all or nothing, and and with him, and and that's another admirable trait of a of a football player and teammate. What's your best Brady story? Uh, best best Brady story. Uh, we're going into. Um, uh, the Texans playoff game in 2012. And like I told you earlier, I had this whole suite of plays that came from me and Josh's time in Denver. And we ran them. These are B. Lloyd's plays. Everyone else is doing the offense. And Brandon has these plays. So we've been practicing this all week. You know, I have this 
this uh, super sweet post move. We're running off a huge, big, huge play action, and the quarterback does that big, you know, legendary tuck, you know, where he fakes the ball and he tucks it and then pops up. And I have this awesome post where I do this fake, boom, and stick it and hit the near goal, hit the near goal post. So we go through warm warm ups before the game. We go, uh, we're coming in and we're getting ready to go out for kickoff. Tom calls me into the meeting room, cuts on the film, cuts on the film in the big room, goes to the computer, pulls up the B Lloyd play, puts the puts the beam on it, right? So he plays it in practice. Boom, and he's like, this is how you've been running in practice. Boom, 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 boom. Forward, rewind, forward, rewind. Clicks on another one. This is how you run it in practice. Boom. Here's your here's your Broncos one. Boom, boom, touchdown, right? Boom. And he goes, here's how I want you to run it. So I have the big post. He just draws a loop across the field, right? Just uh, over, deep over, you know, aiming at the uh, opposite goalpost and in between opposite goalposts and the back pylon. And he goes, this is how I want you to run it today. And I go, cool. We go in the game. I mean, I was 20 yards open. We ran it, and I did it just like he told me to. And it was like, I had never been that wide open ever in the NFL. And it's just, that's just, <laughs> again, speaks to, to what that man does and what he, how he thinks about the game and the work that he's doing outside of, of, of the organization for preparation. So, you know, Tom, he's legit. Do you think he's, when he's finally done in 15 years, <laughs> right. What is he going to do? Cause I feel like he's so zoned into football. He's got it. He's got to be around the game. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's going to, he'll own a team. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll own a team. You think so? Sure. Oh yeah. For sure. He'll be in an ownership you group. You don't see yeah. him in doing broadcasting or front. You, you, you no. think more front office guy? No. Yeah. He'll, he'll be a, he'll be a front office guy. He'll be uh, owning a, a football team. Majority owner. <laughs> with some, you know, his Goldman Sachs homies or something. <laughs> so if your team's crappy right now, you can expect Tom to retire and take it over. <laughs> what was it like playing with Gronk and Edelman? Uh, um, Gronk and Edelman characters. You know, they were so young. They were so young when I was there in 2012. Uh, I was think Walker, uh, Walker was there, right? Walker was there. Uh, and, the, and the team was, you know, prepping uh, uh Andelman to replace him uh or Edelman I'm sorry to to replace him but um uh Edelman was a insanely hard worker and and he was just like an eager beaver <laughs> you know bright-eyed bushy-tailed in there and it was very observant and and it was neat because how I viewed that relationship was I, I viewed him as you know my apprentice and um and I was the role of Curtis Conway and um, and Johnny Morton now for him, and so it was. There was there was a lot of conversations just about you know, you know what's right, what's wrong, kind of like off the field, on the field. Um, he's incredibly funny, so you can. And he has thick skin, so you can just joke him. You can bust his chops. You can raz. He's gonna raz. He's gonna bust chops. But he's just young and respectful. But um, he was very observant on what was going on on the field and how I was doing routes and. Um, and, and, 
and you could see him just plucking and taking and building his own player out of everything that was happening on the field. So it was really neat to see someone um, uh, advancing at, such, at that rate uh, right before my very eyes. It was really neat to see. Who do you think is going to be in the league longer, um, Belichick or Brady? Belichick. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I thought you were going to say the opposite. Um, and then so fast forward to you, you finish out your career with um, San Fran. Is it, is it still blow your mind of how good Cap was that he's – it's obviously blackballed, but that he's still not in the league? I don't know if he still wants to play now, but at that time, top 20 quarterback, and I don't think he, there's anybody that could say otherwise. I say otherwise. I don't, I don't think he's top 20. Really? Um, no, I think he experienced the same success that all young quarterbacks have in their career when they're running. Let's start with Randall Cunningham. Let's, start, let's go to John Elway. Aaron Rodgers was running early in his career. You know, but what happens in a, a player's career, they need to morph into a pocket passer. And so that needs to happen because you can't continue to run. And so he never developed into a pocket passer. And that's not valuable on a team. Like, what are you going to keep doing? Like, do you think he's going to keep running in, in his 30s? And like taking those hits he was taking, it was already taking the toll on him, you know, early in, early in his career. And um, that was probably the thing that frustrated me the most about um, that him when I was there in 2014. You know, as I pull up to the stadium uh, early and he's out there pulling chains, he needs to be in the film room studying coverages, like not pulling chains. Like we, we want a quarterback to throw the ball, not a quarterback to run. Like that's where the, the money is. That's the value. And uh, and and so yeah, I I I beg to differ. Interesting. Uh, and so with some of these quarterbacks now, especially some of these younger guys that are more mobile, and you look at Lamar and Kyler Murray. Do you think if uh, Kyler can show he could throw the deep ball, Lamar is a work in progress? Are you concerned long term if, if if Lamar is a finished product? Well, the concern with Lamar is that uh, he's never going to advance because it's the same court, co coordinator who coached Kaepernick. He's not going to advance into a pocket passer because that's not what the offense lends itself to. So, um, hence, why? Who does the, who does his backup look like? Him, yeah. <laughs> right? And so, and so that that's just the model. These offensive coordinators can't get off of that because that's what they're trained in. That's what they're going to do until they get squirted out the league. Now, uh, Kyler Murray has a height issue. He's never going to develop into a pocket passer. So, um, 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 and uh, King Kingsbury, uh, yeah. thankfully, he's a college football coach in the, in the pros. So, hopefully, they can continue that offense to where the pocket moves with him, uh, similar to how Mahomes' offense does. And that's Andy Reid. Go through the lineage of all of Andy Reid's quarterbacks. They're, they're all the same, you know. Uh, Mahomes is just like Brett Favre, 6.0, right? And, and, and so the pocket moves with Mahomes. You know, he's never really forced to just sit in there, um, you know, with the, with, the, with the tackles, you know, fanned out and the guards fanned out in the centers and the running, running back in there, fitting up in there to the blitzing guy. No, that thing moves. And so I see Kyler Murray stand in that realm, but you got to keep the hits off these guys. That's wild. Um, when you when you, when you went back to San Fran, did you, were you do you have eighty five or did somebody else have that number when you were there? Yeah, Vernon Davis had eighty five, so I was I was rocking eighty four when I went back. 
He never asked you if he could if he'd use it for you? Well, you know, he thought he was as big as me at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, assume, I assume Kittle didn't ask either of you. I, I was gone. I, I was gone. I was gone by then. Both Vernon and I were gone by then. But you know, he had, he had made his name in in '84. So uh, and the numbers really didn't. They weren't really a thing to me. Interesting. Then I want to ask you just go oh, one last question. I wrote it up beforehand. So you you kind of got into making music. Yes. And, and the song that I've heard a hundred times from when Radon Randell stepped onto the field in Blue Mountain State season two, episode one, that was you. Right, heavy. Y'all playing with it, get up on my level. You a lightweight, this is heavy metal. <laughs> I saw that before, I was up here, I'm literally looking like, and then it's really like, oh, he did a song for Glenn. I said, like, oh, which song? I'm like, what? Cause I've had Paige Kennedy on here and he did the little, the little dance. That's a, so what, what was that? How did you get involved with that? So, you know, I was always in choir and when I was younger in school and elementary school and high school, I even, you know, all the sports I did, I still sang in the choir. And so I just always been drawn to music and had a to music, even in college. You know, I was downloading the instrumentals off Napster, making beats. Right. Or Napster. Right, right. Napster. And uh, making, doing remixes, making my own beats with Magic Studio 6 and on the computer. I had a little rap group on the team. And we were playing, making songs and giving them to the guys on CDs. And listening to, our, to, them, on our, listening to them for ourselves before the games. That's what I was doing with them. I was hyping myself up. And uh, so when I got to the NFL, I wanted to continue that on and, um, and record professionally. So I did... And, you know, it just wasn't received well. It was received as me being distracted from playing in the NFL. So uh, instead of, you know, continuing to pursue uh, a public facing music career, I still I love it. So I wanted to continue to do it. So I just moved into licensing and syncing. So that way I didn't have to compete with, you know, Lil Wayne and Jay-Z or whoever the hot rappers were and the persona that comes along with being a rapper. So I just moved into licensing and syncing. So I have a hip hop catalog, a bunch of songs in there, a manager. Um, he calls me up, he's like, hey, he calls me up one night. Was, you know, this is during when I was with the Broncos. He's like, hey, um, you know, I just sold one of your songs, uh, but the guys don't believe me that it's you, Brandon Lloyd. <laughs> he's like, will you jump, will you jump on, a, on a, a conference call with me? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> And they're like, dude, we're going to use your song. And this is you? And it's like, yeah, yeah. So it's like just part of my hip-hop catalog. <laughs> that's, that's, wait, can you do the chorus again? Because I got I to gotta hear this again. Y'all playing with it. Get up on my level. You a lightweight. This is heavy metal. <laughs> did they ever so you never like met any of the people from bms they just kind of just used your used your song and and then yeah we just talked on the phone actually i'm still friends with the producer romanski we hang out in los really? angeles <laughs> That's like, i know we're I, it, we're still friends that's awesome no i had i had ed marinero on and because he's a, i don't know he, he played uh he played for the vikings like 100 years ago and then that page kennedy on and i'm really like this is like this is one of my favorite shows like we're in college and i'm literally like i'm looking at them looking at them today i'm really like wait a minute was this like one of the songs they were playing during the party i'm like no wait this is like the second most popular song outside of the freaking theme song ever <laughs> that's, fucking nuts. that's why. right 
And I'm sure you probably, how many people, and then so then every, after that kind of blew up, was it kind of like every, everybody was saying, oh, that's Brandon Lloyd? I mean, not, not really, just, you know, on, on social media. Not like you know, teammates or anything? Teammates didn't know? Say it again. Teammates didn't know? Teammates didn't know. No, I know. It's like, I know if it's not in that white hot space, then the players won't know it. You know, if it's not like, you know, urban, you know, top 10, you know, the, the hottest artist, low whoever, <laughs> then they, they, they just won't know who it is. Like, it like, was, yo, you know, yo, cause yo, I had a, cause yo, I had a song. I'm watching Spike TV on Friday and this guy sounds just like you. Right. And you know, it is even when I had a song, um, with Bobby Valentino in 2008, when I was with the Chicago or two, when I was with the Chicago bears, um, she all mine. And it uh, peaked at 47 on uh, Billboard's Hot 100 uh, on the urban chart. And it was only a couple players, like, you know, like uh, Lance Briggs came up to me like, hey, you know, and he recited a line from the song. He's like, huh, feather in your hat, huh, notch on the nigga belt. <laughs> He's like, huh, I get it. I get it. And so like they would drop, you know, they would drop some, they would let me know that they were aware that I have music out and that they were feeling it. <laughs> so are you gonna be like the guy in like five years who we're gonna see on The Voice or America's Got Talent? They're gonna be like, "Oh, I know you." You'd be like, "All right, now." No, no. They take you in a heartbeat, right? I think they've had a couple because I know that John Dornboss did his magic on America's Got Talent, and they've had a couple hmm. guys that can sing. So I don't know. That'd be that'd be awesome. That'd be you know, wild. I'm, I'm focusing on my work in the philanthropic space now in my retirement. I mean, you're doing charity. You're you're doing a service for everybody because we're like, oh shit, like, you're on NBC on Tuesday. No, that's right? Fucking, that's fucking wild. That's all. That's unbelievable. That's wild. Damn, Blue Mountain State's everywhere. That's fucking. That's yeah. That's, I that's, love that show. That, that's wild. Uh, well, yeah. And how can people uh, follow you on social media? Keep up with you and keep up with other stuff you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Follow me on social media, uh, Mr. B Lloyd on Twitter. Um, you can visit me on my website, mrbeloyd.com. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn uh, if you want to keep up with my philanthropic uh, efforts here in Colorado with CareerWise Colorado, um, getting uh, 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 young students apprenticeships and businesses and white collar roles. We're making uh, a, a lot of headway and we're really scaling um, uh, workforce development opportunities and talent pipelines and job opportunities for young people because it's so important right now, especially after as we're coming out of this pandemic and, um, and getting young people opportunities to work in America is important and that's, that's my mission. And uh, so reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn, via my website, via Twitter and all that. But I really appreciate everybody for tuning in and hollering yeah. at me it's, yeah. it's been it's been it's been uh, a lot of fun so yeah, thanks no, for having I, me on zach absolutely one, one last quick one what do you think of the broncos receiving core i like the broncos receiving core <clears throat> the um it's the quarterback situation that needs to be addressed it's the offensive line that needs to be addressed it's the play calling that needs to be addressed you know i don't want to see jerry judy catching slip screens like that's <laughs> not that's not popping to me like that's not it. I want to see Jerry Judy out in routes, <clears throat> running double moves, catching it on the outside the numbers, running posts. I want to see the offensive coordinator get him open. Get him open. He can get open. You know, he's got the speed, he's got the talent. He needs he can't do it by himself. Now, um, I like I like Hamler and the slot. I love Tim Patrick. Nobody talks about Tim Patrick. <clears throat> he can ball. Yeah, Tim Patrick. And 
I think all of them together is, is what I want to see. I want to see a receiving core together, all feeding off, playing off one another. But that comes down to coordination, <clears throat> comes down to the protection, and it come down, comes down to the quarterback play. And um, those three components are, uh, are all negatives in my mind. You think Bridgewater just just kind of is just for lack of a better term a bridge quarterback until they exactly. get somebody else? Yeah, and 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 I think Locke is good. He's just immature. He's he just his immaturity shows up. He's childish out there, and and so this year he gets it, and he like seems to be like kind of like oh oh goodness, like you know, I could be in that statistic that you know three three point two years and out of here. Yeah, <clears throat> that can happen to a player if you don't tighten it up and get serious about it, develop yourself, start leading other people and becoming an example for people, you're going to get spit out. And because yeah. why? Because like asking to is picked right ahead of him as the quarterback right before him. He's already got, he's already out of DC. There's 100 players, 100 quarterbacks coming into the NFL every year, <laughs> 100 <laughs> ready to come in and play. And, and yeah, so this set of quarterbacks is only because playing in Denver is not that enticing of a, a, a role for a quarterback, flat out, because of those, those two components, the coordination, yeah. the, instabi- you know, the uh, offensive line, and then the instability in the front office. It's not enticing. No one, no one would want to be here. So this is the quarterback set that the organization has to deal with until they can tighten up the front office then they can tighten up the uh, components that make up an offense. And, and with Fant, does he remind you of anybody, any tight ends you played with or played against? Did, um, and, and I don't recall Noah Fant. I don't think it's Noah Fant, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't I, he hasn't really caught my eye. Really? Interesting. I don't know. I get it. I'm hoping he has a big year from, from Iowa. Cause he had, I think he had, it was last year it was the game one when they had the late night of the Monday night doubleheader. He had a pretty good game. And then I think he's been banged up. You're just saying that cause you got him on your fantasy football. Team. I had him last year. He didn't do shit. So I'm hoping this year as well. And I'm not, so why are you asking that, me that question? Cause I'm like, I, I think he's, a, I think he could be top, top, top 10 tight end. You think because you drafted him on your fantasy yeah. football team, he exactly. could be top, top, top 10. Exactly. So, no, I mean, he, he balled out at Iowa. They took him. I think he was a top 10 pick. So we'll, we'll see. What he, he has some does. problems catching the ball. And so I, th- I so you're being subjective. And yeah, I don't, I don't think that's right. Oh, you just said, of course. Yeah, I'd take him in DC. Like Logan, Logan Thomas, like he's great. We need number two, so I'll, I'll take it now. But because uh, we haven't had like a, like we had Jordan Reed. Jordan Reed's the last jersey I bought, and then they never saw him on the field again. So get a, get a young up and coming tight end, a good contract. I'll take him. Give me OJ Howard. We'll figure it out. Now, yeah, but I do, exactly. I do appreciate, do appreciate you taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate That's it, Zach. It. I want to welcome on my next guest. We've got Chris Clary, New York Times tennis correspondent and the author of The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer, available anywhere you get your books very, very soon. Chris, is everything going for you? It's going well. Yeah, it's been exciting times for me. It's my first you know, major publisher book, and I've been covering Roger for over 20 years. So it's exciting to see it all come together. You know, definitely it's uh, it's been a long road, been a long run for me and a much Less uh, <laughs> microscopic way, I suppose. People aren't really watching me, but I've been following him for a long time. So it's it's fun to see it all happen. 
so how long has the book kind of been in the works? How, how, how long has it kind of, what, what, how did it, was, how did you make sure to kind of cultivate everything and make sure you, you didn't leave anything out? Well, I left a lot of stuff out, guy. You'd have to with that many matches. The guy's played over 1,500 matches in his life and singles on the tour, and he's been playing for 20-plus years and has been in all kinds of places during that time. So that was the hardest part about the book, Zach, was writing writing it in a way that you told the story fully, in a way, but find a way to really focus on the right thing because he's had such a rich career. He's been one of the greatest athletes in the world for a long time. And I saw on here, I never knew that he, he, he never finished grade school, so he just kind of get, went right into it. Well, he finished, he did finish grade school. He didn't finish, okay. he didn't finish classic American style high school. He okay. finished school at 16. You have an option after a certain number of years of schooling in Switzerland to, uh, to stop your formal education. That's, you have to be, uh, follow the government you know, restrictions till a certain time. And as soon as he could, basically he stopped. Yeah. So w- when was the first time you found you first covered him and you kind of found out you, the first time you heard his name? Yeah, the first time I heard his name was when he won Wimbledon junior title in 1998. But junior tennis is, is a great thing. It's great to win Wimbledon as a junior. It's when you're playing all these you know, kids from that summer, sort of same age bracket. And there have been some great ones over the years to have won. Um, Stefan Edberg being another one. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to succeed on the big tour. But I heard about him then. I don't think I saw him play then, but I heard about him. And then the first time I really saw him play ever was um, 1999 French Open, which is one of the four Grand Slam tournaments. A couple of agents I know said, hey, there's this kid out playing today, Federer, special talent, need to go out and take a look at this. And you know what? I don't represent him, so you can trust me. So it was good. I took that advice. I went out and watched him play Patrick Rafter, who number one player in the world from Australia um, during that period. And it was 1999, Suzanne Longland Court. I stayed to watch a set and I was watching the whole match. And that was his first ever Grand Slam match that he played. He lost it. He won a set against Rafter. And you could already see a lot of that uh, potential in him um, with his flashy game and the things that he did so smoothly and well. But he also had a fiery side. He was very consistent and um, took him a while to pull it all together. But ever since that match in 99, I've kept close tabs on him and I interviewed him for the first time in 2001. So it's been yeah 20 years of, of interviewing him pretty regularly. Is he the same guy then as he is now? You know, of course not. We all change in that period of time. Somebody like that who's been exposed to so many yeah. amazing people and amazing experiences and his confidence has grown and his wealth has grown. Of course, he isn't the same guy, but a lot of the basic characteristics are still there. And that is that he's he's a very empathetic person, somebody who's not just, you know, thinking about himself. It's not all, all me, 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 I, I. He's kind of in the, in the group. When you're talking to him in an inter- interview, he'll engage with you, want to know about you, kind of get a sense of where you come from, which I don't think is all that common for superstar athletes, to be honest. And um, he's a guy who likes to likes to tell a joke, likes to laugh, likes to uh, to be real. And I think he really is, in a lot of ways, remarkably un, unchanged, face to face, person to person, after twenty years, considering all that he's that he's done in the game and in world sport. I saw I saw in the book that he he really likes connecting with different audiences, and he'll kind of go out of his way to make sure it's easy for him to connect to a new fan base that maybe kind of untapped. You know that's true. I think he's I think he's very cognizant, and he's become more cognizant through the years as he's become globally very popular he's never really had a dip in in popularity you've seen tennis players through the years who you know dominate so much they end up becoming people root against them you see guys who are go through tough periods and they kind of become a bit surly or a little uncommunicative he's had a very sort of steady build over the years which i think mirrors kind of the stability of his personality and and how engaging he really is and and i think um you know over time he's realized there are places he hasn't played for example in real tournaments uh, main tour events 
he's hardly ever played in South America in his, in his career. So he's wanted to go out there and play exhibition matches there. One of the last things he did um, before the pandemic was go to uh, South Africa, where his mother's from, where he spent a lot of time as a kid. And he played Rafael Nadal in a, with Trevor Noah and Bill Gates in an exhibition down there in Cape Town Stadium with 50,000 people, biggest crowd ever for a tennis match in the history of the game. And they played in this, you know, basically a football stadium that was built or soccer stadium built for the World Cup. So he's he's definitely cognizant of the of his fan base and he wants to connect with people, you know, all over the world if he can. And it's a global fan base. And I think also in the US, he's made a real effort. Part of the reason I got so much access to him, Zach, over the years was because I write for the New York Times and I wrote for the International Herald Tribune, which was the international New York Times for many, many years. And he wanted to connect with North America, you know, the fans there. So that was one of the reasons I got a chance to sit down with him so often. So yeah, that has been pretty strategic on his part. And I think because of his personality and he's an extrovert, I think it's pretty easy for him to, to reach out like that. So, so did he just kind of come out of the blue kind of when he was discovered? Because I saw, I was watching some recent interview from a couple of years ago. He was a ball boy for two years and a kind of bunch of people kind of started noticing him. And then, and then it just kind of just, just went, 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 went up. You know, he doesn't come from a, a professional athlete family. His, either his parents played elite sport. His mom was a, a good athlete, you know, good field hockey player. They were recreational tennis players, took up the game later in life, you know, with some, you know, play recreationally in clubs. And Switzerland does not have a great tradition of, fantastic men's tennis players. There was a guy named Heinz Gunthardt who won Wimbledon doubles and was a you know, fine player on tour, but wasn't a dominant player. There really was nobody like Roger on the men's side. There was Martina Hingis, you maybe remember her. She came along as Roger was developing and she was number one in the world on the women's side. But I think, you know, basically he's a guy who everybody in Switzerland knew he had a special talent from a young age, but globally it took a lot longer because he wasn't from one of those big nations like uh, the USA or France or Britain or Australia that have the Grand Slam tournaments or Germany, which is a big market. So people weren't as aware of him, I think, globally for a little while. But I can tell you the agents all know. They knew he was something special and knew he was going to be potentially a great player. But it took him longer because kind of game he has and because of where he came from. Is it, when he walks around in Switzerland, he just get hoarded everywhere he goes. Is there anywhere he can go? That, is there anywhere he can go in the world where he's like just a regular guy? That's a great question. You know, and I, and I, I was interested in that question. I went to Switzerland for the New York Times uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, to do a story about just that. So I was curious how he was you know, perceived in his home country. And the answer is that the Swiss are pretty mellow, pretty cool about really? it. Yeah, really? Walk down the streets of Zurich and, um, you know, he can do that. He can walk through uh, central streets of Zurich with his family or with a friend and people will know him. They'll, of course, they'll know him. They'll look at him. He might get the occasional autograph thing, but it isn't like he can't do it. You know, it's not like... Um, you would imagine um, Messi in Argentina or, or Rafael Nadal in Spain, for that matter. People in Switzerland, they keep it, uh, you know, I think pretty much in perspective with sports and they realize that people have their private lives. It's funny, his agent, Tony Gazek, once told me that when he gets stopped in Zurich or Switzerland, a lot of times it's foreigners who are visiting Switzerland who will stop him on the street. Um, and so that, you know, that's kind of funny that people that are there wouldn't, wouldn't go for that. And I had, I had lunch with him in a restaurant. I talk about this in the book. Just the two of us in Switzerland, I think it was 2019. This place up in the Swiss Alps where he was living and training. We walk in and it's kind of an Alpine style restaurant and pretty full at lunchtime. We walk in. I think obviously the guys running it knew he was coming, but the people inside the restaurant didn't know. And all the heads sort of turned. People looked, eyes got a bit big and then they went back to their lunch. So it's a really, uh, I think, interesting phenomenon that there are countries that have different approaches to it. And also, I think it's been a big key, as he as he says, to his longevity in the game is that he's had a place he can go 
live a relatively you know normal life and be able to uh, you know relax. I think that's yeah. been important for. And I also saw on the opposite end of the spectrum. I think you talked about it in the first chapter. You were in a car with him driving, and I guess somebody recognized him and definitely was not going the speed limit or driving like a normal human being. <laughs> that was in Argentina. That was um, in 2012. I think it was in December. He was down there for one of those exhibitions we were talking about, you know, in South America, trying to build his fan base and also, you know, connect with people and all that and, and make a lot of money. And he was there and I got a chance to interview him going from the site at around midnight to uh, his hotel in downtown Buenos Aires. And yeah, uh, there the atmosphere was not Swiss-like. Definitely a lot more mania going on. And as he got off with his car, I've interviewed a lot of sports people in cars. That's the, kind of the life of the sports writer and a lot of tennis players. So we're driving and um, yeah, these guys on motorcycles obviously know it's Roger. There's a police escort, but they come zooming in from the side and this guy leans out the window and most of his body's out of the window and he's sort of waving his uh, a flag and he has an RF cap on, which is Roger's monogram thing. And so you know, he was just laughing at it all, looking at it and just sort of, because, you know, believe it or not, I don't think he's been in a situation that often where there's that kind of a rock star mania about him, at least at that stage. So it was funny to see him. The guy got back in the car, nobody was hurt, but it was, he was definitely going over the speed limit, even in Argentina. I wonder what the, I didn't know the head speed limit was there. That's very interesting. Um, so kind of growing up, I saw that he kind of wasn't like, now you see him as just a humble kind of guy you can relate to. He's a kind of a guy, kind of like, like a, a guy you people kind of look up to but as growing up he wasn't always that kind of like in that in that mindset i guess he kind of had his youth and kind of wanted to, and kind of i guess kind of grew had to grow up quickly well you know i think roger i think it really changed for him was he grew up in um in basel in switzerland which is right near the french and the german borders so it's a place that's pretty cosmopolitan it's got a lot of different languages going on a lot of different cultures and his mother is from South Africa, so he spoke a lot of English at home. And then the main language was Swiss German there. So when he was 14, in order to kind of improve his game and take a next step, he went to a, a town near Lausanne on uh, Lake Geneva called Ecublanc, where the Swiss had a national training center, kind of like their little mini IMG academy. And um, the language there was French. And the schooling was in French, primarily. And so that was a huge thing. Imagine at 14, you know, how, one, how self-conscious usually we are at 14 and how well-established we are in some ways in our personalities. He had to completely go out of his comfort zone, study French, learn French, and kind of start from zero. And I think that really was a tough period for him, but a really important period in terms of developing some resilience. And, and goodness knows he's used that French a lot through the years and all his interviews and, and all his tournaments around the world has been a big bonus for him. But that really started him growing up but he had a lot of trouble controlling his temper, a lot of trouble. People would have never imagined it watching him play the last 15 years or so. And you see how kind of zen-like he is, like a mask on the court. The emotions only come out afterward. You see a lot of tears from him in big moments and emotions, but it's after the match. Um, but in those early years, it was all over the place. I remember watching him when he played Rafter. I said the, mat, the match in 99 at the French Open, he tossed his racket, a lot of, you could definitely tell the score from his face. And over time, he really learned to control that. And I think that was a big key to his consistent results. And I think his own you know, peace of mind on the court and his ability to really express himself. But, you know, he was not a Zen master from the start by any means. Interesting. What do you think drives him? Because he's had so much success. He's one of the most decorated athletes of all time. What, what do you think keeps him going? I'd say there are probably a couple of things. One is, I think he really genuinely loves the sport of tennis. 
And I say that sounds like a cliche, but I, a lot of athletes and a lot of tennis players who do not truly love the sport of tennis. It's a grueling game, highly competitive, one-on-one, can be very demoralizing. A bunch of guys show up at a tournament every, every week. And only one guy walks away really happy with the trophy. So there's a lot of losing. And you got to be mentally very strong and resilient and have that inner self-confidence to succeed. So I think he, uh, he really, really loved, loves just the flow of the game, the feel of the ball on his strings, you know, the creativity that he can bring to the game with his shot making and everything else. I think that's been a big factor. That's kept his interest. And I think, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you know, he's a guy who uh, is a, he's a glass half full kind of guy. He's a guy who looks at things and tends to emphasize the positive. He likes positive thinkers, people who are constructive in their criticism. And I think that's what he's surrounded himself with over the years. Been very smart about that. Yeah. Was there anything you found out while you were writing this that you kind of had to double and triple check because you're like, there's no way that's true? Mm, that's a good question. And I've covered him pretty closely over the years. I really got much deeper in my understanding, I would say, uh, of things. I think one thing that's interesting in the book is um, how he built his financial empire. There's a whole chapter about that, which is sort of near the back of the book. And I think it's in some ways when I learned the most reporting. And there's actually um, there's a period in his career early on, despite all this genius that he was showing and, and talent, when uh, you know, Nike wouldn't, wasn't interested in renewing him uh, at a decent level. They were kind of, yeah, okay, we'll give him 600,000. Not going to give him a million a year, even though he's shown to potentially beat Pete Sampras at Wimbledon, but no, we're not going to give him that. So basically his, his father was kind of basically just imploring the agent at the time, a guy named Bill Ryan to, uh, to uh, take the offer from Nike and to uh, accept it because, you know, they needed the money. He was trying to build his career and the agent wouldn't do it. And you think about it now, I mean, this guy ended up winning Wimbledon eight times and winning 20 grand slam titles. And is one of the greatest athletes of his era and one of the very greatest tennis players of all time. And he's made on and off court, probably a billion dollars in his career. And so that they were haggling, his father was so worried about him making it at that time that he was kind of imploring the agent to take an undermarket amount up for this, for this deal. That really surprised me. And it just shows you how, how much things are kind of hanging by a thread at times, even for the most talented athletes in these early situations in their careers and how things can go a lot of different directions. So that was what was really interesting to me, both with his mentality, his finances, his choices of people he worked with, all those things, if he hadn't made certain choices along the way and hadn't made just the right decision, he could easily have been a very good player, but not a great player. And he could very easily have played for a few years and won a few slams, but not played for 20 plus and 120. So I think those are the things that I really enjoyed reporting and learning about with those sort of, I call them, you know, hinge moments when things can go, sliding door things, if you will. And there was, there were a lot of those with him and I got to give him, he's had a lot of good fortune, but he's, he's made a lot of his own luck too. How does he turn it on and turn it off? Or is it always on for him? I think he does turn it on and turn it off. And I think, I think there's a, there's a certain press conference persona, go out there in the public, he can be laughing, joking, pranking in the back backstage with his, his friends, or his peers, his other fellow players. And then once he goes out, there's a bit of a, Boom, change the chip, off we go. People have talked about that with me, about how it is amazing to see how he can do that. And the thing, there's a great story in the book from James Blake. Maybe you've heard of him. He's an American tennis player who was a you know, top, uh, top five player and a uh, great guy. And he was you know, playing Federer in a uh, tournament in Indian Wells relatively early in his career. He's already established as the number one player. And they were in the locker room and they're basically just chatting. Hey, how's it going? You know, talking about their wife and house that Roger just bought or the land he just bought in Switzerland. It's all very chatty and relaxed and da, da, da. And they go out on the court and boom, right away, Roger's like, 
in the match, 100% focused in. So I think he's over over time. I don't think he had that early on, but he's really developed that ability to uh, to change the chip. What was something you learned about him, like while while you were putting this together, that you found to probably be one of the most relatable things about him? Well, I think it's all for me. I was a junior tennis player. I played college tennis, Division three at Williams College in Massachusetts, and I, you know, I was a mediocre player in in a global scheme. Of not things. not on Roger's scale. Not really quite on Roger's nah, scale. Okay. But I was, I was equal to him in terms of early temper. I had issues with my temper and my expectations. So I think I found it very relatable, if that's the word you're going to use, his, his request to control himself. And I think the fact that, you know, when he was in his teens, it became clear that he needed more help than he was getting from, he could get from his parents or from his coaches or people he was working with. So he went and saw a sports psychologist at a pretty early stage in his career at a time when that was not, you know, maybe so widely embraced by people or especially in Switzerland was not something that was very common. And he did that with a guy. And I think it really was the sign of how he was able to open himself up and, and try new things and, and be able to approach that. So I, I interviewed the, the psychologist for the book and there's some things he can't talk about, but he was very interesting about Roger's mentality and what they went through. And, and I, that was something that was surprising to me to know more about that. And since you're a Boston guy, I want to ask you, who's, who's, who's going to stick around longer, him or Brady? Mm, that's a great question. You know, Roger could go a bunch of different directions. He's had some knee problems again, for a long time in his career, he had no major injuries. He's had back problems throughout his career, but he had nothing that really stopped him. He had his first surgery of any kind that, that he's, at least he's talked about in 2016. So that was five years ago. And he's what, 40 now. So he was 35 before he had any kind of real surgery. Um, and he really had a kind of a charmed run there. Things have changed of late. He's had uh, a couple more knee surgeries. He came back after the pandemic, really had a long break after some surgery and has really not been able to hit the high notes the way he did before. It's understandable, but um, I think he's got some tough choice to make here. I'm not sure he could continue on, decide they can play on another season or two. Well, more likely, I think, is that he would decide to kind of finish out this year or even maybe not and, uh, and, and move on from pro tennis. But he will always remain a big part of the game. I think he's interested in playing a role globally in a lot of ways. And I think um, I would guess at this time, looking at the way Brady played last year, I, I think I might go with Brady. Yeah. Do you think, do you think Roger's the kind of guy that would rather kind of leave a little early rather than too late? I don't know if he'd view it that way. I think he would view it more as if, do I still have a chance to win a slam in my, in my own head? Because he's obviously conquered a lot of doubters through the years. Yeah. He's been asked about retirement for you know, 10, 11 years. So it's, he's sort of operating on his own timeline and he's learned that he should trust himself. I think when he knows deep down in his mind that he can't do it or that his body's not going to allow him to do it, then he'll stop very soon. And I don't see him being one of those guys that's going to, all right, guys, 2021 is my last season. Let's say farewell in every city around the world. No, I don't think that's going to happen. He might do an exhibition tour and go to those places and, you know, celebrate with them. He's not going to do it at pro tournaments where there's, you know, big titles at stake. And it's something he wants to go through that. His, one of his old coaches, Stefan Edberg, you know, great Swedish champion, tried that in his career. And Stefan <laughs> thought it was so grueling and draining and exhausting, kind of getting the keys to the city and all these places that he just – I'm sure he told Roger, not the way to go. So I think when Roger stops it, at least the on you know on tour stuff, he'll stop it. I saw it. How many different countries were you in at times when you were writing this book? Well, I mean, the book is written from my reporting over the years for the time. Okay. So, I mean, basically I've covered Roger on six continents. I never added up the countries. It would be interesting to do. Um, and I definitely, you know, have followed him closely on those six, including the trip to South Africa in Cape Town I was talking about before. So 
if you want to write about Roger in a meaningful way, you got to be global with him. And definitely I was in economy class <laughs> doing it, but it was, a, it's been a great run. And obviously any tennis player you follow, like a Formula One driver or, or to a little, little more limited degree of pro golfer, but I guess that applies. You're going to have to go global to do it and to get a sense of what he's able to pull off. And with him speaking German, speaking French, and, you know, having English be the lingua franca in a lot of places and just his natural ability to connect with people. I think when you see him in all those different contexts, that's when you really realize, you know, that what he's achieved is not just on the court, but really off the court too. He's been able to be a charmer on in every time zone imaginable for a long, long time. And then I just got one last, one last question for you. So for like the average sports fan, who's not the biggest tennis fan who checks out the book and, and goes through, what do you think is going to be like the biggest takeaway they have about it? Somebody they kind of thought they know, and now you kind of have a more detailed look. Yeah, Zach, I tried. I'm not sure I succeeded. Maybe you could tell me, but I tried hard to uh, hit two audiences with this book. One was tennis nerds like me, people who followed the sport for years and played it. I was hoping that they would learn something about Roger and, and really, it's not just about Roger, this book. It's about this whole era in men's tennis, which has been incredible. Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, who all also have won 20 Grand Slams at this point. And then Roger's biggest rivals and Andy Murray, American like Andy Roddick, James Blake, people like that. They're all in the book in, in some kind of meaningful way. So it tries to wrap it up. But I, I also wanted to try to give people who really weren't tennis fans at all, maybe were interested in Federer only, knew who he was, something as well that would appeal to them. And that was, that was the hard balance to strike because you, you need to be detailed and very precise and, and kind of get into the weeds a bit for the tennis nerds, but you also have to give it a, some scope and breadth for people who are more general readers. And I feel like the thing I would find most interesting if I were a general reader, I think, is just that evolution of him, not just as an athlete, but as a person, as a businessman, as a parent, he's got four children, he's traveling the world with four kids, two sets of twins. And that whole thing is, it's been remarkable across many fronts and it's been very intentional in a lot of ways. And I think what I really take away from it, and I've talked about this you know, a bit in the book, is the guy really has an ability, having watched him closely, to kind of go into a situation like this podcast and give his all, like just 100%. No distractions. I'm with you. And only you, Zach. I'm talking to you. That's the way he is. He goes right at it. And if he goes onto, onto the court, same thing, focuses. And he does that by being very smart about how he schedules his life by being you know, able to, with all his money now, to protect himself and be able to travel in private jets to kind of keep the tension down. But uh, there are plenty of guys who have that as those means that don't do that. He's really, really good at being able to focus fully on a situation and find the good in it, something that interests him. You know, how many interviews has the guy done? How many sponsor meetings and greetings yeah. has he done? But he really, you talk to people, they're just blown away by his ability to do that. And I think all of us in our lives, we're never, never going to be able to hit the ball like Federer or you know, cash a check as big as Roger's going to be cashing. But we can, I think, take that intentionality and that ability to, uh, to zero in on the situation we're in and find the good side of it and find something that, of value in it. And I think that's something we could all learn from. And I, I think when I finished writing the book and I you know, finally put down the uh, laptop for a little while, that was what I thought of. Oh, wow, that's, that's quite something to be able to have had so many people and so many sources. I interviewed over 80 people for the book, all talking about, you know, his ability to do that in different spheres and one last quick one so a lot of the greatest athletes we've ever seen a lot of times they're, in the, they're obviously in the public eye a ton while they're playing and then sometimes when they sort of get out of it they kind of just want to 
do their own thing. They've lived a full life. They've done everything. They've been speculated and scrutinized and everything. Joe Montana, you, I don't know where he's living. Michael Jordan, you see him from time to time. Ali was a little bit out of it. Is, is Do you think Roger, when he's finally is all done, is still going to be in the public eye? Or do you think we're just going to see him from time to time? No, I think he'll be in the public eye in some way. I mean, I think he wants to take his foundation that he started and really go with it and go with it in a big way and try to make it into a, a more global sort of organization. And I think he also is somebody who likes the contact with people. He just likes people. The guy, when he gets into a room, he kind of lights up and he's an extrovert. So I do feel like we'll see him uh, leverage his celebrity and his platform, but also because he'll enjoy doing it. He may take a break for a little while. I mean, he's got four kids and they've been traveling the world with him for a long time. But I, you know, it's funny. I think I saw a Swiss interview with him this week and he says, what do you, what do you want to do when you retire? Which he doesn't usually talk about. Um, and he says, hey, I'm going to go to the... You know, you know, the NBA finals and the uh, Super Bowl, and I'm going to go see all these different big sporting events. And I'm going to go skiing, I'm going to go learn how to scuba dive, and I'm going to do all this kind of stuff. So he's going to be very active. But I think he'll also take the keep brand Federer, if you will, going and, and keep that connection going. And I think he'll also contribute to tennis because he cares about the sport. Awesome, awesome. Well, the master, the long running, beautiful game of Roger Federer, it's available. It's available now in Australia or soon in Australia. In Australia. But August okay. 24th is the big date. So that's when it awesome. comes out to the U.S. Awesome. And then how can people find you on social media to keep up with you, some of the great work you're doing at the Times, and kind of just a little bit stay, stay on top of tennis? Yeah, thanks, Zach. I mean, I'm on Twitter. You know, it's Christoph Clary, and I'm also, I, I'm also on LinkedIn. And those are the main spots where you can get me. Um, and I'm uh, writing in the Times, you know, every, all the time on tennis, sometimes other sports. And uh, the tennis during the U.S. Open, which is coming up and starting in a couple of weeks. It'll be starting, I think, um, August 29th or 30th. So we'll be having regular columns in there throughout the, throughout the U.S. Open. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Zach, really interesting. Thank you.